Welcome back, everyone. Today we're going to continue our exploration around topics of meditation. I'm here with my wife, Kelly, who is going to engage us in conversation. Some of the topics that we've covered so far were around Vipassana and this idea of attention as a way of getting a sense of what's happening in our minds to develop more self-awareness. And in the last podcast, we discussed breath awareness using breathing techniques in order to begin self-regulation processes to make changes in how we're feeling and ultimately to have some conscious control over our various states. Today, we're going to dive into another area, uh, which is sound, use of mantra and sound in general, its place and function within meditative traditions. Awesome. I feel like um, the word mantra is confusing for people. Can you, because I think people think that it means they have to chant some sacred prayer from a different religion that they're not really a part of. And so I've noticed some people resist it. They're like, oh no, but I'm not religious or from whatever religion that is. So I don't want to do that. Can you kind of demystify that for us? What does mantra mean? Mantra literally means projection of the mind. So man is mind and tra is projection. Uh, And so an important idea here, and this is what ties all of meditation together, is we are trying to work with the processes and dynamics of our own minds. Whoever is listening to us, this and our conversation, we've existed with our mind long enough to appreciate how challenging it is, how complex it is, and how difficult it can be to manage and the various ways in which it can uh, spiral out of control and take over. One of the primary reasons a lot of people begin practicing meditation is to deal with anxiety and stress, but also to develop greater focus. And that is one of the principles of meditation, this idea that in an, when it's untrained, the mind will kind of go off habitually in a lot of directions, which makes us ultimately unfocused and, and dissatisfied in a certain kind of way. So across the board, meditation is aiming to corral our attention and to apply that attention in some productive way. The most classic way is to try and dive deeply into our own minds and consciousness so that we can have a better understanding of, and a more accurate understanding of what we are, of how we're structured. In more clinically based and modern versions, it can be about being more focused, more calm, more productive. Uh, But either way, in, in all permutations, it is about corralling the mind in some way. And the concept of mantra is very much about that, Mm. is taking the unformed, nebulous process of the mind and figuring out how to channel it through a form. And the form in mantra is some kind of phrase or sound. Is a sound of any kind? Not necessarily of any kind. Uh, Part of the classic philosophy within which mantra developed is this idea that the basic structure of reality is in the form of waves. 
in the form of vibration, in the form of vibrational waves at the core of reality. And but I mean, ancient Vedic philosophy said that? Absolutely. Really? Uh, the, 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 and of course now physics has demonstrated that. So this idea that we hear of the first thing was the word, or the first thing was the sound, that the coming into form, to step back even farther, the, the real base essence of reality is a formless potential that hasn't come into any form yet. But its first move into something that's tangible is in the form of vibration, and in that regard, in, in the form of sound. Is all vibration sound? Does, to, by definition, to vibrate, does that mean sound is created? This is a question for a physicist <laughs> and not for me, so I, I, I will not venture into it. Okay. Uh, but what we certainly can say is that all sound is vibration. Okay. And so it becomes an incredibly powerful way of impacting essential reality, essential reality outside of ourselves and essential reality inside of ourselves. Because the fundamental structure of everything, you, the chair, the trees, everything around, is some form of vibration. Vibrational energy. Vibrational energy, yeah. I mean, it's, it's an interesting concept to wrap your head around because you just said to bring stuff from the formless into form requires vibration and or sound. And that's a hard concept for me to wrap my head around because it's not like when I'm singing or chanting, I see things suddenly forming in front of me. It's not like, you know, I have this magic to create a, you know, a banana or something like out of thin air because I've sung a note. But on the other hand, I can wrap my head around the idea of an opera singer singing a note that causes that glass to break. So clearly the vibration of sound does affect form. Yeah. And there is certainly an element here that sound does have an impact and bring things into creation. Just a little correction for accuracy sake. Okay. It is not that the first move is that sound happens that brings the formless into form. It's that when the formless comes into form, its first structure it does that is sound. sound. Okay, it does sound that. is the form. Sound not is not the catalyst that's bringing the formless to the form. Ooh, that's good. That the first form is vibration, and and in its essence, it's sound, and that's what ohm is. That kind of universal stereotype of someone meditating and chanting om. The idea is when you're meditating and deconstructing the layers of your mind and awareness, aiming to get to deeper and deeper sources of reality, when you get to the base layer, you hear that sound. You hear om. You hear om. So it's not that om is a created sound that is intended to have some effect. Om comes from having listened to the kind of quieted your mind enough to listen to the bass sound. And that's the sound that you hear. And so it's a reproduction of that sound to bring you back to that place. But OM exists. Ah, oh, um, um. That sound exists as the basic humming of all of reality that underlies it. And that's why we chant it. So it's like the humming of our souls. I know you don't of, like that word. No, it's not that I don't like it. It's just not accurate in this case. Right. Because 
the way we might think of a soul is a kind of individualized chunk of reality. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about Om, we're talking about all, all reality. of reality. The, the totality of everything it has a kind of background foundational hum to it. And that sound is Om. So you're saying that Aum, uh, not just O-M, but this Ah, uh, what is it? How do you break it down? Well, it's all of the vowels, basically. So Ah, O, U, M. And just to pause and think about the what that does and why it's complete. The sound Ah is projective. Wherever you are, just try it right now. Go ah, ah. Feel that as you say ah, something is coming out of you. There's a feeling of projection. Yeah, and your mouth has to open pretty wide. Exactly. So ah is taking you out. Okay. Then say oh, oh. Oh. So oh brings you in. Feel your body as you say oh. Oh. Now do ah again. Ah. Uh, See how ah projects? Yeah. You're going out. Yeah. O brings you in. Yeah, it's like, con- it's contracting. Contracting. So ah uh, is expanding. O is contracting. Mm. Now do oo. Oo. And compare it to the o. O. Oo. Feel how the oo takes you in even more? Yeah, yeah. So o, even though it's an internal sound, You'll feel it more around your mouth and your throat and your chest. The ooh takes you into your abdomen. You're going lower and deeper into your body. And then the last sound, mm, Mm. even deeper. Yeah. So if you put the pieces together and you traverse the experience, it is a sound pathway that takes you from external to internal. So trace it. Ah, in silence. So it's a four-part process or a five-part process. Ah, o, u, m, silence, and the silence is the deepest internal essence. Oh wow! I love that. That it's a it's a tool. To bring you inward into your deepest parts of yourself. And that is a beautiful transition to what your initial question was, which is, what are mantras? And so many people are turned off by the foreignness of it. The way we want to think of them are as tools. They're tools, they're techniques, techniques in a variety of ways. So mantra, projection of mind, a way of focusing the mind. Two, this idea that the foundation of reality is based on vibration and frequencies like keys of vibration. So everything has a particular kind of signature of vibration, both externally but also internally. Thoughts, thought patterns, emotional patterns, all of those are equally created out of vibration. And each type of thought, each type of emotion, each type of part of your body has a signature vibration to it. And so we use particular sound frequencies, particular phrases or mantras in order to impact that sound frequency in a direct sort of way. So in its classic sense, and that's why you hear a lot of, okay, someone's assigned a mantra, this is your mantra. 
because we each are habitually patterned and structured in some way. We're not all the same. Right. And the what is the foundational structure of that difference is some kind of vibration, just by definition. And so there's an intent or aim to match a mantra, a sound phrase, to correlate with your individual psyche's vibration in order to make adjustments to it. So, you know, if you go to India and you go see a guru and they assign you a particular mantra that's just for you, is that just matching your vibration or are they giving you a mantra to improve your, I don't know if I should use the word improve, improve your vibration or deepen your meditation? Like, you know, is it meant to just match you or is it meant to change you? You're assigned a mantra. Great question. And this is a really important point in our kind of sustained conversation here around meditation. Because Vipassana, as we talked about it, is kind of your baseline for self-awareness. You're just being present, allowing your experiences and being aware of them. And that gives you insight into what's happening, but doesn't change change you. Then we talked about a kind of more nuanced idea and how the process of allowing or practicing Vipassana does actually change and settle things in a self-regulating sort of way. It leads to a change when I, I mean, I find Vipassana really hard, but when I do sit and do it, I sit there long enough, something does change. Something does settle in my monkey mind. Exactly. So there is a self-regulation process within just observation to a certain extent. Then you have breath, as we talked about last time, and by beginning to breathe and breathing signatures is a stronger methodology for, as I joked about, taking your your mind um, by the reins, by the reins, by the horns, uh, because taking your mind by your breath, because it's where you're beginning to corral and regulate the mind in a certain way. But in general, what you find, and in theory is that breathing signatures deal with pacing, but not so much content or pattern thinking. Whoa, 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 you've lost me. Breathing, say that again? So part of the structure of our minds is they have a pacing, a rhythm, content. These are descriptive sometimes your mind is racing. For instance, exactly. That's rhythm and pacing. Racing, going slow, all over the place, really focused, alert, tired. Content could be worried content or um, grateful content or to-do list content. The infinite range of things that we experience and think about. So what did you say, breath? So when you're playing with breath, the primary facet you're dealing with is the pacing. Ah, okay. We have our breath signatures, and those breath signatures can set how your mind is going. Now, of course, that affects content. What's a breath signature? So, for instance, if you breathe in for eight seconds and exhale for eight seconds. You call that a breath signature? We'll call that a signature or a time. Um, The language isn't what's important here. The concept is what's primarily So those, those breathing techniques. Breathing techniques affect the pacing of your pacing of your mind. Totally. I get that because, and we talked about this last time is that basically the slower you're breathing, the emptier your mind is of those monkey mind thoughts. And I have experienced that when I finally do succeed 
succeed is a terrible word to use for meditation, but when I, when I do experience quieter states of meditation, I can, that I can say, I notice that my breathing has gotten very, very slow. So, so I understand what you mean, that your breath, and if your breath is slow, that means you're probably in a deeper state of meditation. If you're breathing very rapidly, you're probably anxious or your mind's racing and stuff like that. Exactly. We covered a lot of this in, in the last podcast. So where is the place of sound yeah. in this conversation? And where sound and mantra are traditionally used is for change, for, change. for transformation. That this is the soap and water, the detergent, the this is how you change what you're feeling, what you're thinking, the content, the quality that happens in its most powerful form traditionally through sound. And if we can see that sequence, appreciating just awareness, breath is pacing, now this is where you're kind of beginning to get into these deeper sub and unconscious patterns that drive what you think and how you feel. And so we use mantra to rewrite the code, to rewrite the fundamental code of the psyche. And so it really is the most powerful tool in the toolkit. And for a variety of reasons, especially when you practice a range of meditations, it feels that way for a lot of reasons. Uh, But the theory behind it is the things we've been exploring around vibration, that ultimately what's happening at your sub and unconscious levels, at those deepest levels of the psyche, are vibrational flows. And so now you're inputting... You're putting in a new vibration. A new vibrational code that eventually begins to repattern what's going on there. Wow. Well, and what I've noticed about mantra for me is especially like when you do a long ohm or three ohms in a row at yoga class, it, it's mantra and breath at the same time. Because when you do a long ohm, you're basically taking a long breath. You're, you know, when someone says, take a deep breath, calm down. Well, when you do an ohm in yoga class, especially a long one, you're, you're taking a deep breath because you're doing that long exhale plus you're adding in the vibration. So I find it really calming to do those three ohms because it, clearly the vibration is having an effect on my, I'm rewriting my psyche, as you yeah. say, but I'm also impacting the pacing of my mind by taking that really long exhale. And one way that I like to talk about it is thinking of mantra as vocalized breathing, which you just explained beautifully. In order to effectively chant and practice mantra, you need to the foundation of that is breath. You find the same thing with with singers. The foundation of singing training is breath training. Yes. And so it's embedded within the sound, but then you have the amplification of the sound production itself. And so for a variety of reasons, you know, I think as you alluded to in the beginning of our conversation, there's a kind of barrier to entry to working with mantra, foreign words, foreign sounds, when I teach in classes, a lot of people are often shocked and shy that they're going to have to chant something publicly. It's a very public, vulnerable thing to... Right, they don't think they're going to sound good. Yeah, so you you have, and it's a separate question, kind of internal repetition versus vocalized repetition. But for now, we're talking 
vocalized repetition, saying it out loud. Oh, as opposed to saying it to yourself. Mentally silently. repeating it. Okay. Uh, but it offers a number of, of advantages. So number one, when people do practice it, a lot of them really enjoy it because it has a point of focus. That when you're just doing Vipassana or just allowing your mind, the formless, focusless nature of it can be very hard to work with. Yeah. So when you have something like a task, you're giving phrase, your mind something to do. Something to do, then a lot of people find that much more doable and enjoyable and productive. Then the quality of producing sound beyond all philosophy has a literal visceral sensory impact on your body. It, you feel the sounds in your body and it's impacting it. And so that begins to make real tangible shifts in your blood chemistry, in your musculature, in your brain chemistry. And, and those are palpable and, and noticeable. And then you have these deeper changes that we're talking about, which are more embedded within the philosophy of, of yoga and traditional forms of meditation but vibration, matching vibration, to rewrite the code of one's psyche over a longer period of time. Wow. I have a, one last question. You, I've heard you talk about before how, you know, like I said, people are often resistant to do mantra because they feel like they're, you know, practicing a religion that they don't subscribe to by, by chanting this foreign word. I've heard you talk about before, and I'm wondering if you could talk about it now, how Aum, right, um, is very similar to Amen, um, very similar to, similar to, similar to uh, Amen, right? So like the, the different religions, they all sort of use some, like they not only do they all use mantra, right? Like all major religions, Spoken prayer is a huge part of how they connect to that, that, you know, divine energy that they're working to connect to. Um, so not only is mantra something that we see in almost all major religions, that Aum sound is, is across almost all major religions. Can you talk about that a bit? I think part of the, my perspective on this goes back to our, explanation as we were exploring uh, before. There are legitimate differences between religions and to kind of say that they're all the same is something that I don't ascribe to. But what I can strongly get on board with is that we are all human and operate with the same structure the same structure in body, mind, energy, and spirit. And exploring sound, sound has universal impacts on us. So anyone who is listening to this recording in any religion, area, tradition, hopefully can connect to that ah as projection, oh is coming in, ooh, and that that movement of experience that you can just feel in your body. You feel it, yeah. Separate from any meaning or purpose. It's just producing sound and seeing how it makes you feel and what that's doing to you. Yeah. And all of the traditions at some point were exploring the human experience. In the end, religion, philosophy, they're all 
intending to give some accurate insight and description to what our experience is. And that came from somewhere and required exploration. And there is a universality that can come out of that exploration. So the, the universality is that we see mantra or spoken prayer or spoken chants of some kind, whether it's an amen or an amen or an om. We see that across all religions. So basically every major religion and philosophy discovered the tool of using spoken vibration to affect your, your system. Yeah. I think when we're talking about religion and spirituality, we're talking about a range of human experience. And that range of human experience is within our awareness, what it feels like. When we're talking about soul or spirit, we're talking about what it feels like to have a certain kind of experience that is different than a more mundane experience. Not that one is better or worse, just that they're different ways. And so the sacred is a type of experience. And so we're using tools and techniques to bring that experience about. And sound is a potent methodology for doing that. And there is a consistency in what certain types of sounds do, the impact on the psyche, and having a subset of sound techniques that bring about a more sacred experience. And that is why I think you see a kind of universality in the types of sounds and religions. Because those types of sounds bring create inward. that. Yeah. Create that experience. I love that description of, of how Aum brings you from outward to inward. I love that. This reminds me, I've heard you talk before about how the human body is an instrument and that for you, doing your daily meditation practice is a way of tuning your instrument. Does that relate to this discussion here on sound? This, that concept of this yeah, is an instrument absolutely. that we can learn how to operate or play you know, optimally? It is the yogic idea. The yogic idea is that your structure is very much a multifaceted instrument and the structure of that instrument is vibrational and it has different structures as pathways or nadis, centers or chakras, different ways in which energy flows, different ways in which we project outward and inward. There are 72,000 nadis or energy pathways in the human body. There are three main ones in yoga, a central one called the Shushumna, one that moves through the spine on the left side, side called the Ida, and one that moves through the right side on the Pingata. The idea is if you can learn how to regulate, like a guitar, the vibrational quality of these three chords, of these three strings or channels, it shapes the other 72,000 nadis. And so what we're doing in yoga, through movement, through breath, through mantra and sound, uh, is aiming always in a universal way to somehow impact the vibration, the rhythmic vibration of the system in its energetic form. And yogic mastery is first being attuned to and aware of the vibration of those elements, and then in turn having a skill set of techniques to self-regulate around that. 
to get back into tune. To tune yourself and then apply yourself in your life. And that tuning is inward, which is your self-awareness and the depth and clarity of your thinking. And it's outward in your action and interaction in the world. You are the entire reality is a vibrational instrument. And you as an individual are a subset of that vibrating instrument. And so you regulate yourself internally through vibration and you relate externally to the vibration through your vibration. So doing the meditation and the mantra and the breath work is a way of sort of tuning our instrument, tuning our guitar before we go and play our guitar, which means before we go out in the world and act. Exactly. But in the end, what's important is not what you do on the mat. And this is a very popular idea these days. Meditation shouldn't be limited to when your eyes are closed and practicing. Yoga shouldn't be when you're stretching and on your mat. It's about what you take out of it. But that really is an accurate idea here. The idea here is in these traditions, if you don't practice meditation, if you don't practice yoga, then it's like flying a plane without a license. You have this very complicated, powerful, sophisticated machine, and you don't quite know how to drive it. You're not. Or going back to the musician analogy, uh, someone who wanted to play the guitar well would never go up on stage and just start playing. They would always tune their guitar first so that what they then projected to the audience through their playing was as harmonious and beautiful as it could be. And it was also what they intended to be, right? Because you could go up and play a song, but if it's on an out-of-tune guitar, it's not going to sound like the song you wanted to play. Yeah. And, and to take it even further, before they're on stage tuning the instrument, the guitar player had to learn how to play. How to, and how to tune. At some point, that person had no skill, just this tool, this instrument that one didn't know what to do with. So there was an incredibly long learning process of learning mechanics. These are the strings. This is how you do it. This is how you play it. And our human system is the same. It is an instrument. And yoga and meditation have always intended to be the manual, the compendium of techniques for learning how to play the instrument and learning how to tune the instrument. And the end version of that is its application in real life, in real time. And that's where we can't avoid it. We are all operating in life. The question is how and what's driving it, what perspective and what tools do we have to apply ourselves. But one way or another, we're all applying ourselves. So what, um, what own work, <laughs> not homework, but own work could we do this month related to mantra to start tuning this instrument of ours? A very simple, basic mantra that I, I teach people in Kundalini Yoga, it's kind of mantra one-on-one uh, for two reasons. One, it's very simple, and two, it's very effective. And it's the mantra Sat Nam. So sat means truth or reality. In what language? In uh, Sanskrit. Okay. So sat means truth or reality, and nam means name or identity. 
So the meaning around this is that the essential identity, both of ourselves internally and of the universe around us, is truth itself. Mm-hmm. And so the repetition of the sound and its meaning is a methodology for connecting back. And that is an important thing to say about mantra, quickly, is that it, it has these two layers of meaning. One is the meaning, and if you're native to that language, then the repetition of that meaning, like an affirmation, is a reminder, it triggers something. For most people who aren't native Sanskrit speakers, speakers. or Rumuki speakers in, in Kundalini, um, language, a language. Um, then it feels foreign. And for a lot of, it just feels meaningless. It feels exactly. like, it feels like a, um, to me, Satnam is just like a, a word, two words that have no meaning to me. But the, the idea is that the meaning there is to trigger, uh, an experience or a reminder, but then the sound we've explored the whole time, Sorry. the sound that we've explored the whole time has an impact in some way. And very often there's meant to be a correlate between the impact of the sound and the meaning of the mantra. So in this case, sat nam, truth is my identity. The repetition of the sound is a way to bring you back to your core essence. So it would be better for us to to do to practice the mantra of sat nam as opposed to say over and over again, truth is my identity. Truth yes. is my identity. And why? You can say truth is my identity, it's useful to understand that, because the repetition of that over time might condition you to see yourself in a different way. Like an affirmation. Like an affirmation. That's the role of affirmations. But where mantras are different than affirmations is they're similar in the affirmations and the meaning and its intention to trigger a remembrance. They're different. I'm sure there are people who have schools of thought of affirmation who will take issue with what I'm about to say here, but... That mantra is the sound signature itself, regardless of meaning, has an impact on the psyche. And it's actually the sound signature, the vibrational quality of the sound That's that we common. really, really care about, not well, the meaning. Okay. And, and I can understand that because, like, when I chant Satnam, because I've taken your classes before... And now I'm, I'm having a new understanding of it because based on this conversation, sat feels very projective, right? Like my mouth is open wide when I say sat, right? Even the S, this, like having to make this sound means I have to go outward with my breath and my sound. And then the nam, like even saying mm, the N sound instantly takes me inward. And I know you're doing then the nam, you're doing the ah again, but you're ending with that mm to bring you inward. So it feels like sat is outward and nam is coming inward. Perfecto. Oh, good. <laughs> Perfecto. And, and that's the point, And that's the technique. Even though the words don't mean anything to me. Exactly. The, the way that I feel just chanting these, you know, meaningless words for me, at least is it, it relaxes me to do it. And now based on our conversation, I realize because it's We're going from an outward sock to an inward. Yeah. Nam. So why this version that I'm about to share of Satnam is so useful is it's very, very balanced in the way that you just identified. There's an outward releasing quality and then there's an inward containment quality and they balance each other out to put us into a neutral place. So the way that we do this is we take the sat and the emphasis is on the ah. So 
the sound ends up going nice deep breath in. So. for as long as you have breath. You use up your whole breath in the saw. I could have kept going. Yeah, for all those listening, Aaron, <laughs> he's been doing this for so long, he can sing saw for like two and a half minutes. So you keep going, but your point of focus as you're doing this, technically, is you'll feel it in your throat and your chest. So you want to feel the vibration happening in those areas and this feeling like the sound is a laser beam of projective light coming out of your mouth going to infinity. So heading outwards towards infinity. You're projecting out through the throat and the chest and the mouth, letting a vibrational quality leave you. Okay. And think of that as a train. And what you want to put on the train is all of your stress and worry and anxiety. Nice. So this is something you might do at the end of your day when you've had a lot of stuff on your mind and you're ready to unwind for the day but you can't let it go. You project the sot and you try and couple or hook in, put on the sound train, all of the stuff you can't let go of, and then let it leave you through the projected sound so that ideally, at least conceptually, you are left with a total empty space because it's left you through the sound. And then with that emptiness, what you're left with, you want to contain, and that's where we do the nom. So you get rid of all the stress and the bad stuff, and then you keep in the good stuff. And so the nom is a soft, quiet, and you feel like a sphere or a bubble kind of collapsing on itself, but not in a strangling way, but kind like of a in, a, way. in a hugging way, like a hug. Nom is a self-hug that comfortably, in a comfort way, like um, compresses itself on you. Mm-hmm. And where do you want to feel that in your body, in your heart? You want to just feel a sinking quality. And that might be in your heart, that might be below your belly button, but it's kind of in your body. It's bringing you home. So awe takes you out and you're carrying everything you don't want or need to leave you with it. And then in that emptiness, that positive emptiness, it's a space finally. Now you're kind of hugging and imprinting that and taking yourself inward, which is where we want to be. So when we put those elements together, the simple technique here is as follows. Deep breath in. silence. So part one is sat, part two is nam, and part three is a silence. And then you repeat it. Take another deep breath and repeat minimum of three minutes. Five minutes is fine. Up to 15 minutes is great. Technical question. Do you take another breath before you say nam? No. Because you said sat should be your whole breath. Yes. So we need to, if we're not taking another breath to say no, then we need to save a little bit. Correct. And that's technically correct. Thank you for the clarification. You have one massive breath that you take in, uh, and then you use almost all of it up on the sop, but you need to leave a little bit left for the nom. And as you hopefully practice this, 
you'll begin to get a sense of how much you need to save for the nalm. So you learn the nalm, what, what, what needs to be left to make that hug compression imprint sound. And when you get familiar with that, you use the rest up on sat. Okay. Another technical question. Yeah. Should you do sat as loud as you can? No, because you're then straining. Part of what we're aiming to do here <coughs> is have it feel effortless. So there's a quality, and this goes back to what you said so beautifully before, of thinking of the sound as a vocalized breath. So the key is the breath, and then the feeling is like the breath is a balloon that's filled up, and then you effortlessly allow the compression of the balloon to let the air come out, but as the air comes out, it comes out in the form of sound. So there's a power behind it, and that power is actually rooted, this is getting a little more technical, uh, below your belly button, what we call your navel point. So you want to envision that the source of the sound, the power is from there, it's projecting up from there. So it's not coming from your throat. No. It's coming from... Deeper. By your belly button. Deeper, exactly. And it goes up through your throat. Exactly. The throat is where it gets projected, but it's the source of the sound is from down by your belly button. Exactly. But there's this middle place, which you'll find with practice, where there's a power behind it, but you're not straining to create that power. Okay. And if you go as loud as you can, you're putting an effort in that creates strain over time. This wants to feel natural, but powerful, like a river that's flowing. It's a river of sound that is flowing through you. And it's driven by the breath, and you're containing it, channeling it, projecting it, and allowing it to move through. I like that visual of the balloon. I also like the visual of like an accordion. It feels like you're squeezing an accordion. Yeah, exactly. And then you take an inhale to pull out the accordion, and then you squeeze it again. Yeah, what I prefer about the balloon is that the balloon we know does it itself, whereas an accordion needs someone to push it in. And so the balloon has its the elasticity of the balloon, self-compresses. Yeah. There is a little element of it, for sure. You, to project, you need to put something behind it. It's not just like a balloon. But you want to veer towards the balloon side as opposed to the accordion side. Yeah, you don't want to force it out. Exactly. Some effort, but not forced. Like everything in meditation. All right. So three minutes a day. Start with three minutes. Work to five minutes. And at some point, you might try it for something like 11 or 15 minutes, and explore what the impact of the sound is on you. And that's the take-home message here one to today. Mantras are our most powerful tool for change, for changing how we feel and think within the meditation compendium. Find a way to not allow the foreignness of the sounds to become a barrier of entry. They're not the important point. Instead, have a intention of exploration. And tuning your instrument. Just sound as technique that has some kind of impact on you that you're curious about seeing how it makes you feel. And practice with that sense. And see how it goes. Awesome. And if people want to see you soon, obviously you have your private healing practice over the phone. Um, but you have a workshop, right? I have a workshop coming up October 1st at Mindful in Greenwich Village, New York City. And I'm really excited about it. It's actually a new workshop that I'm developing that hopefully will be a primary offering of mine moving forward. And it is essentially trying to find a way to take 
the dynamics and structure that happen in my one-on-one practice, which are an integration of interactive spiritual coaching with guided meditation, meditation practice, and healing, all directed around towards helping people change uh, and live more effective and conscious lives, and to figure out how to create that in a group format. And this will be the first offering of that, which Ooh. I'm excited about. There's... So I hope to see you there. Um, and if people want to know more about that, will they find that on your website? Always on my website. So uh, com. A-A-R-O-N-T-E-I-C-H.com. Thank you, and hope to see you somewhere soon. In the meantime, practice sound. It is incredibly powerful and experiential. Enjoy.